Thank you for listening to The Real Reality with Dr. Oren Amate. Please check out my website, docamate.com, for more about what I do uh, as a psychologist and a university lecturer. Uh, t- today, we have uh, the second part of a podcast I've been doing with uh, a guest I'm really glad to have on. Um, it's Suleme Anderson. Uh, she is a journalist. Uh, she's a writer. Um, she's uh, based in New York and Beirut, Lebanon. Um, and she's written for The Atlantic, Newsweek, Vice, New York Magazine, Foreign Policy, Harper's, and Vox. Uh, she's also written a book, um, The Hostage's Daughter, which is about uh, her experiences um as a child of uh, Terry Anderson, who had been kept a hostage uh, by terrorists in Lebanon for six and a half years, and um, we've been talking. We were talking in the previous podcast about what brought us together. I'm going to give a bit of a, uh, a, um, a recap of that, and I do hope you listen to that previous podcast. Check it out. You can also check out more about uh, Suleme at SulemeAnderson.com. It's S U L O M E anderson.com and uh you got her work is there there's a bio on her a full bio and um one of the things uh that i want to mention i didn't mention the first time uh basically what brought us together was that um, she's on a video with uh david pacman on his podcast somebody that i've been uh watching and really enjoying and um and he was basically she was taking him to task for taking reza aslan to task and just one thing that we didn't talk about the first podcast, I just wanted to throw out there, and no need for discussion, I just wanted to throw it out. But one of the things that he said in his, uh, I think in his hyperbole, was that he said that Bangladesh and Malaysia are, quote, free and open societies for women, okay, and that in Indonesia, women are 100% equal to men. And so um, these are some things that uh, David Pakman did attack uh, with some pretty strong statistics and some arguments. So just want to put that out there. We hadn't talked about that before. But the whole point is um, that Suleme and I were talking in the previous podcast about the kind of just ugliness that is out there, the kind of ignorance, hostility, aggression, hate, misogyny, what you, you name it, it's out there. Uh, and we're not saying all people are like that, but there are instances. And for people saying, just suck it up, come on, they're just trolls on the internet. Um, when your whole life is being scrutinized, when it's being distorted, when your position and who you are is being uh, not just distorted, but uh, you know, attacked, harassed, negated, it can take a toll on you. And um, especially if you're a woman, there's a, a flavor to the attacks that men don't experience. Um, most men are not usually threatened with rape or gang rape or other things. It's, it's a different type of language. And it's not that women are poor, you know, hypersensitive women. It's just that any person who gets a deluge of these kinds of attacks uh, that are very personal and ugly is going to feel it. And, and that's what uh, Salome was uh, unfortunately undergoing. And I might have inadvertently kind of re-stirred the, uh, the, the pot, so to speak, uh, when I brought up uh, the, the podcast that she was on with David that had happened in May of 2016. I brought it up a couple of weeks ago. And uh, she was, um, I think, uh, generous enough to, to hear me out, to talk to me. And we uh, found out we got a lot in common. I think we like each other. And um, I, I like her, at least so I can say on my end. And I think she's got a fascinating backstory. She's very intelligent. And uh, we were talking before the podcast um, about how there are other elements of, of this whole story that we can talk about that go beyond just simply trolls on Twitter. So with, ha- with that long uh, um, introduction, Salome, welcome back on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So um, one of the things that we were talking about, and there's a trigger. I'm not going to give a trigger warning because I just don't do that. Um, and I, in my classes, I talk about some really, really 
difficult, scary, horrific things, and um, I do it in a way that my students are able to hear it, uh, and they can keep an open mind, and they don't, uh, you know, shut down. They're not getting triggered. I mean, they may get triggered, but they're able to tolerate it. They're able to hear it. So, um, the only warning I was going to give you, jump in. Oh, yeah. I'll just jump in and tell you, um, you know, as somebody who survived a sexual assault, I personally don't appreciate trigger warnings. I mean, I think everybody's different, but for me, I, it feels like I'm being coddled when I. I feel like I'm strong enough to to have, you know, to to have gotten past that. I mean, I know that's not the case for everyone, but I'm kind of of the mind that you know that that, that you you need to get to a place where you know you can tolerate that, and that's going to be through exposure. Exactly, and, and that's the word that I use all the time uh, with my students and with my patients. Um, as a psychologist, as an lecturer, um, you know, as, as a parent, I'm all about exposure. Exposure done in the right way, because um, that's the only way that you you learn to be able to move forward from difficult things or to be able to process uh, information. And um, so, you know, I, I'm I'm glad that you said that. Uh, and so, what the warning I was going to give is what we're about to talk about today. We're going to be talking about mental health. And a lot of a-holes on the internet are going to jump all over that and try to use that. And I know that you, you've talked about it yourself. You've written about it yourself. So it's not a secret. But people are going to, you know, they're going to misconstrue this. They're going to try to distort it. And if you do do that, then you are not a good person. Okay, I think it's pretty easy to say. When someone's being honest and open about things and someone uses that as their way to attack them, saying, oh, it's a weakness or a vulnerability, you really are a terrible person. And I really think that you should look at yourself in the mirror and wonder, what, what's so lacking in me? What's so you know, pathetic in me that I have to lash out in this way rather than reflecting on who I am and trying to make myself a better person for myself and for the people around me? So I'm going to get off the soapbox. And um, so... You know, when we were talking, you were saying that um, in your case, not only, not only this, and you didn't mention this to me before, not only had you been sexually assaulted previously, but you said there were other reasons that these horrific comments and attacks that people were making on you kind of like, you know, really hit home or or, or were hard to deal with. Can you share, uh, you know, elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've written about this quite a bit um, for the for the main purpose of destigmatizing mental illness because it's something that our society n- hardly ever talks about honestly or intelligently, at least um, from an educated standpoint. I think there's so much ignorance surrounding it, even in the mental health community, um, and particularly with the kind of condition that I've been that I've struggled with, which is borderline personality disorder, and that's something I was um, diagnosed with in my early twenties. Um, and I have to say that there are direct correlations, you know, between my sort of the way it manifested in my childhood. I do believe that it definitely played a huge role in in developing my sense of self, um, which was not not well developed. Um, and so, so when you know, this is something that I've spent, you know, a decade, um, you know, with doctors, treatment centers. Um, I've spent so much money on this because, you know, um, in America, you don't get free mental health care if you do it's certainly not you know up to standard um so there's all there was a lot of money spent on this and i've gotten to a place in my life where i no longer fit the criteria for the condition and i feel like you know i've I've gotten to a place where i i'm a whole person now um but that wasn't always the case however um you know things like borderline personality disorder they don't just disappear um you know, and there is like a sensitivity to rejection and criticism that comes along with that condition. Um, and there's a lot of self-hatred and self-doubt. Um, you know, the condition itself is very complicated. 
Um, it's a lot, most people, even mental health professionals, don't understand it. A lot of them don't want to treat us because they think that we're too difficult of patients. Well, can I just um, jump in for a second? There's a few things, just so you know, because I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, that just, and I don't know about America, but in Canada, I can say, I don't know if we have actual stats, but I can say anecdotally, especially I've worked in numerous places and spoken to so many different healthcare professionals, and that uh, people with borderline personality disorder are the number one uh, people that psychiatrists or psychologists or other therapists, as soon as they hear that diagnosis, you're absolutely right. They will refuse to treat you or they're going to fire, quote unquote, fire the patient um, because the pa- they call them the number one word that's used to describe uh, borderline people with borderline personality, manipulative. Emotionally manipulative. Exactly. <laughs> yep. And I say, you know what? If you can't handle one hour of someone who's in pain, who's struggling, you know, struggling, and and that this is not necessarily a, a, a pre-planned attack. Although sometimes it is. More often than not, it's it's a, a a fear response, and they don't have the tools to you know to be able to articulate themselves properly or to you know express their needs in a healthy way. If you don't, have, if you can't handle that for an hour. Hour, what the hell are you doing? All right. So I always say the only two reasons that I would ever accept for, and, and you know, I work with many, many people with borderline personality or borderline traits. And, you know, I, I don't let that deter me because I am a humanist. Um, and I say the only two reasons that I would say to someone that, you know what, I can understand, I don't agree with it, but I can understand why you wouldn't want to treat someone is A, the highest rates of suicide. And that is a hard thing for a lot of people to handle. And fortunately, to this date, of the very many people with borderline personality that I've worked with, not one person has killed themselves. Many have threatened to. Many have tried. Many have called me in the middle of one or afterwards, you know, after an attempt. Um, you know, and, and you know, I because I my patients are able to contact me twenty four seven. I won't always be able to respond, but I want them to have that continuity. Um, and, and the best programs for treating borderline personality, in fact, do have that component where the uh, the, the patient is able to reach out to the therapist. It's almost like a sponsor. So I always say, look, I might not be able to communicate at the time, but you know there's somebody out there. There's someone who's got your back. I'm not charging you for this time. This is my personal time, but I'm so committed to the process. I know how difficult this is. And it's not just for my borderline patients, for any patient. I just want them to know there's that continuity of care. And most psychologists won't do this because we feel it'll take up all your time. And some days it does seem, you know, I'm getting emails, phone calls, to, uh, to, you know, uh, texts. But that's a commitment yeah. I make, you know. Um, so in any event, uh, so the suicide, I can understand that, um, that, that some people would not want that. And the second one is that uh, people with borderline personality are among the top uh, type of patients who are going to make a false claim to a college against the, the, their health care uh, provider. And it's a nightmare. I've been through a number of these processes. Not for that. I've never had a patient make a false claim against me or a real claim, just so it's clear. Um, so, but I have been uh, through the process uh, for other cases, all false allegations, but I know what it's like. It's a nightmare. So I can understand somebody not wanting to go through that process. But like I said, um, if you know the pain, the suffering, the struggle, this, this sense of, uh, or this lack of, uh, of, of identity, somebody who says to me that they cut because it's the only way they know they're human, they cut because the only way they can feel is they cut because at least they can control that pain, whereas the, the rest of the pain they feel 24-7 is uncontrollable. How can you not have a little bit of compassion and say, you know what, I'm willing to take those risks? Sorry, that's my little uh, editorial. Well, that's really good to hear because, um, you know, I just had a friend with borderline um, commit suicide, one of my very good friends, oh, um, in September, and um, she was the kind of patient that doctors didn't want to take on because she was just so suicidal. Um, but I mean, you know, in a case like that, um, she ended up with a very good therapist who was there for her and, and, you know, drew boundaries because it's true that we can be very, very difficult patients, um, you know, uh, reaching out all the time, needy, um, 
The problem is that um, we, at least for me, and I think it's the case for many people that I've talked to with the same condition, um, we uh, hate ourselves so much. There's like this sense of so much shame. I think um, borderline is rooted in, in, and most personality disorders, I think, are rooted in, in deep shame, except for sociopathy. Um, right. So, you know, it's, it's, it's something that um, is very painful. And for me, um, I've attempted suicide three times when I was younger. I don't think they were serious attempts. I was never particularly suicidal in that I never wanted to die. I just wanted the pain to stop. Right, um, right. And, you know, it, they were sort of half-hearted, but, um, but also, but so my, my way of coping was drugs. I mean, I was high all the time for probably like 12 years, um, you know, it, from my late teens into well into my 20s. Um, the pain for me was so intense when I wasn't high, I wanted to die. So I just didn't let myself feel it. Um, so these are things, you know, all, all this backstory, maybe um, it sheds a little light on why trolling is so difficult for me because, you know, I, am, I would call myself an emotional person and a sensitive person. I don't think those are bad things. I've gotten, I mean, you know, then again, you also look at my job and it's like I, I see an incredible amount of suffering and I'm in pretty dangerous situations and I managed to keep my cool, you know, so... I, it's, it's, you know, you can be emotionally sensitive and you know, be able to, to function and do jobs that are very difficult as well. Right. So um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but when it comes to being attacked and harassed online, it was very painful for me um, in a way that I don't know that it would be for everybody. But I think I've talked to a lot of women about this, and um, they've all said the same thing, which is when uh, women online with, with um, you know, platforms or an online presence, and they all tell me the same thing. They just say it's it's horrible. Like you, you, there is no, there is no um, solution for how to get over it because it, it's painful for all of them. Um, and the and as you said, the way we're attacked is quite different from men. Um, so so yeah, but that that is the backstory to to my sensitivity to it. And I would just say that um, you know, borderline is is incredibly misunderstood. There are you know, I understand why a doctor would not want to take on a, an extremely suicidal patient. Um, you know, that's a difficult thing. I actually wrote a piece about this for The Atlantic because when it, there's many reasons. First of all, um, patient suicide is the number one cause of lawsuits for psychiatrists and, and mental health professionals. Um, you know, when somebody kills themselves, there's this need by, from the family to blame someone, which is totally natural. Um, and a lot of that falls on the therapist. Um, and, and most of the time, I imagine, you know, incorrectly. Right. However, um, you know, what are we what are what are we supposed to do you know when you're a very suicidal patient you need somebody to help you and we and you know all the evidence shows that people with borderline can in fact improve um, and get better and I think I'm a good example of that but there are many others with with help and work we just need that kind of support right and you know the 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 most uh, let's say commonly used or the most commonly recommended type of therapy is dialectical behavior therapy, um, and the dialectic is kind of like saying um, we value they use different words, but basically it comes to we're able to show the the patient that we value them as a human being, we love them or provide you know unconditional positive regard, but we don't put up with bullshit. That's yeah. di- dialectic, and, and that's and you know that's an oversimplification. And DBT has four modules. They talk about being able to tolerate the discomfort, the pain, and so on. Talk about being able to self-regulate. You know, talk about being able to uh, manage interpersonal relationships better. Um, and you know, when I read up on DBT and I saw it, and by the way, do you know who uh, created DBT? 
Marsha Linehan, who had um, borderline, yeah. Exactly. She came out a few years ago admitting that she had borderline personality as well, which to people who knew her, said they said that was the least, you know, that's the least sur- uh, surprising thing they've heard from her, okay, because it was pretty, apparently it was pretty obvious to them. But, you know, it takes somebody to know who knows the experience firsthand to be able to say, you know, this is how, you know, best to work with us. And so when I read about it, I was getting pissed off when I read about it because, not because of the treatment itself, but because so many therapists, you know, when I'd go to conferences or whatever, we're talking about this DBT like is this revolutionary thing. And it's like the premise of it, I think, is what any good therapist should be doing with everybody, which is basically valuing the person as a human being, but being able to work with them in a way that shows them, okay, this is not working for you. This is not adaptive. Let's find better ways of doing it. And when I say this, I'm not judging you as a person. I'm just showing you this is not working for you. How can we change it? So for people to be so blown away by this revolutionary technique, it's like, no, come on. The only thing that she did, in my eyes, was that she systemized uh, a process um, and kudos to her because, again, I think it's very important. And the part about the mindfulness and the grounding and the tolerance of you know of, of this um, you know the, this pain and, and being able to emotionally regulate, I think that is so important. And you need a proper uh, understanding of it and approach to it. So I'm not um, discrediting or uh, you know denigrating DBT in any way. It's a really important type of therapy. But what I was saying was I was doing the same stuff myself, less systematic and just more instinctual uh, for many years before I you know. I read about it more officially. Um, but I think you're in the minority, to be honest with you. Um, the thing about DBT is, well, first of all, a, a dialectic, you know, is to hold two things at once. So people with borderline have an enormous problem with um, nuance <laughs> and emotional nuance. It's very much black or white, and that it really plays out in interpersonal relationships. So somebody, you know, whoever it is you're, you're um, in a relationship with, whether it's a family member or, you know, significant other or whatever, um, there's this pattern that develops where the the person that you're interacting with is either all good or all bad exactly and you're either all good or all bad and it switches off so there's this very there's this feeling of you know this person is a paragon and write about everything and i'm scum you know i'm a terrible person i should just kill myself or you know i'm completely right this person is is, is you know the, the the scum of the earth and they're you know they're wrong about everything so it's it's the whole idea behind dbt is to hold you know, both those things at once. And right. I think the main premise is you're doing the best you can, but you can do better. Right. And to hold those things in your mind at once and validating yourself and your struggle at the same time, pushing yourself to improve, to change and to change. You're never going to change from, you know, talking to a therapist about your problems and just him listening and taking notes. That's not going to change anything. Um, you know, my m- change is hard. It's very difficult, and a lot of people with borderline might not be ready for it because it requires really examining yourself um, in, in a way that's honest and not in a way that's, um, you know, condemning or, or flagellating yourself, but looking at, you know, the things about yourself that you're ashamed of in the light, and that's very difficult. Oh, it's um, scary. It's terrifying. And also, yeah, it's terrifying, and then especially when you have so much shame about, you know, right. everything. I mean, I would explain it as an inexplicable, in, like intense shame at your very existence, which I don't think most people experience. Um, and and you know, so so it's very difficult. But DBT hel- helps me in the beginning um, in in terms of you know the skills. It's very skill based. And the thing is, you know, a lot of the skills might seem very common sense to most people, you know, um, but they're really difficult for us because we haven't developed those skills on our own. So 
what DBT helps you do is, is practice and develop these things that maybe come naturally to people with healthy psyches, but are very difficult for us. So it is helpful. I've come to a place in my treatment where I'm actually in uh, transference-based psychotherapy, which is um, a different approach. It's a lot more um, in- interpersonal. So basically the relationship between the therapist and the patient is used as a model for relationships outside of the room. So, you know, my therapist, um, and it, it involves a lot of honesty, which is difficult. So my psychiatrist, you know, will say things to me, and it takes a really intuitive, um, you know, intelligent uh, psychiatrist to really be able to do this effectively, but um, you know he'll say things to me. You know, while I'll be, while I'll be talking, he'll just be like, "Oh, um, I noticed you're doing that thing that maybe you're doing in other relationships, and I don't necessarily think it's helpful for you. So why don't we talk about that?" And um, and that's difficult, you know, um, but but it's important. It's very important, and and you know that kind of therapy has changed my life completely. Right, and just so people understand that this is not, I mean, even though we're using the context of uh, borderline personality or dialectical behavior therapy, uh, the reality is what you said about, for example, having to examine yourself, um, it's scarier for people with borderline personality, but I'll tell you, having worked with so many people who don't only have BPD, but uh, you know have other issues, um, it's scary for everybody. Most people do not want to look inward. They want to just you know look at all the problems on the outside. It's like for narcissists, no narcissist has ever come in to my, see me and say, you know what? I really don't like my personality or, you know, they come in and say, what's wrong with the world? Help me figure out why nobody appreciates me the way I do or why people are sabotaging me or something like that. So it's really difficult for people. And it doesn't have to be a personality disorder just for anything. A, self-reflection is scary for most people, but again, it's much more so for people with borderline personality. And B, um, being able to teach people to tolerate, and this is what we were saying at the beginning, to be able to tolerate the discomfort, whether it's self-reflection, whether it's recognizing, oh, my parents aren't gods. They did make a mistake. You know, one of the funniest things I tell my patients, I mean, my students, sorry, is that I said in the early days um, when I was being trained, and I have a really uh, compassionate, um, psychodynamic-based uh, mentor, uh, I still consider my mentor to this day, um, and and I, he would, we would listen to the tapes together, and one thing that happened a few times um, well, until until he heard the tape and told me what I was doing wrong is I would hear a patient telling me how horrible their parents were and they would go on for like 15 minutes just telling me the, the most horrific accounts of neglect or of abuse just horrific so in, in a very compassionate um, supportive way I said wow your parents sound like you know they, they really hurt you or they did a terrible job or something like along those lines and they would turn on me the patient like how dare you say that Right? Some of them actually outright said it. Others, you can see in their body language or, you know, at the next session they came back and I could tell there was a difference. They were, you know, defensive. And so I said that to my mentor. I was like, I'm being c- compassionate. And what he told me was, and this is interesting, okay, because I, luckily this was early on in my career. Uh, so I have, you know, I've been sensitive to it for, ever since from a long time ago. But what he told me was this, and I had never thought about this. He said, because he knew my background, he said, not everybody had parents like yours. Now, my parents, I'm not going to go too much into detail, but they are two very different people. They are not the normal people that you expect. My mother, uh, well, she opened up Canada's first sex store. My father, a bipolar you know, um, artist, um, very uh, passionate, um, basically was kind of run out of his, uh, his country, uh, Israel, for being, um, you know, for saying, you know what, we can't treat the Palestinians and the Arabs 
microbes like dirt. We have to treat them like human beings. And the intellectual elites, the uh, the artists that he hung out with, a lot of them didn't want to hear that. Um, and this was like uh, oh, four, 50 years ago. Um, so you know, my, that's an incredibly brave thing. First of all, I would like to say that's that's another cause that's dear to my heart, and I just. You know, that's especially at that time, it took incredible bravery. Right, and, and that's and that's what I saw. And that my parents never preached to me. You know, they didn't try to ram down. Well, my father was pretty pretty against religion. I'm, I don't take that same stance, but because he saw what it did, he saw what people were doing for you know their religious cause. Uh, so you know, yeah. he was very. He always tried to force me to see reality for what it is, not for what he or or my mom or or anyone else was saying. He said, you know, have your own truth, see it, uh, experience it, challenge it. And they don't. They didn't just say it. They did it. You know, for a, a woman who was, I believe, twenty four at the time, maybe twenty six. Uh, I think she was twenty six years old. Starting up Canada's first sex store. I think she was twenty five. Actually, sorry, uh, which was forty. Um, I think forty five years ago. Yeah, my gosh, forty five years ago. Just uh, this past uh, week or so. Um, you know, that, that took courage, that took ovaries, you know, and so it wasn't so much what they were saying, it was what they were doing, you know, they were just modeling for me in their own behaviors just to go out and take challenges. But the one thing that they did explicitly say to me, and this is what my mentor was saying, was they explicitly from a very young age said to me and my siblings, they said, we're not perfect. Hell, we don't even know what we're doing most of the time. Okay. So they said, if you don't, you know, if you don't agree with something, if you think something's wrong, Tell us, challenge us, ask us. And we're talking like I was maybe four or five years old when I remember hearing that uh, for the first time. So that was ingrained in me that my parents were not perfect. So whenever they screwed up, A, I would challenge them. B, usually with bad consequences because my my parents didn't tell. By the way, when you challenge us with a big mouth and a five-year-old body or a 10-year-old body, there will be consequences, not pretty not, not pretty ones, okay? So uh, it took me a long time to actually I never really did learn. I just kept doing it. But C, okay, um, the most important thing was, and this is the part that I had never experienced. I, I didn't know that nobody else, ex- that most people didn't have the same experience was whenever my parents did screw up, which was many times, when they did bad things i didn't internalize it i didn't say they're doing bad things because i'm a bad person i was saying they're doing bad things because they're bad parents and i would tell them okay and that helped shape my personality so my mentor told me he said virtually everybody else they are hardwired to believe that their parents are these you know supernatural beings or these you know and it makes sense we need to have this in our dna to trust this thing that's taking care of us because Otherwise, we're going to die without them. You know, this is a survival. We have to believe that they have our best interests. So, um, you know, so when people tell them outright, even after they've told me all these horrible things, I said, wow, your parents really suck. I, I tried to be more tactful. You know, <laughs> it, it caused a scary reaction. And, and this go back to the dialectic. They couldn't have this belief or they couldn't hold in this in their, in their mind. My parents maybe did love me, we hope. But they really had a really bad way of showing it, and they weren't able to execute. They had good intentions, bad execution, and they can't hold those two uh, thoughts in mind. It's not just people with borderline personality. It's lots of different people. Yeah. I think um, the the important thing, so um, just to address that is, is yeah, I mean, so, so, so there's a lot of evidence that shows BPD is, is, has um, an, a very strong connection to trauma in your childhood. Yes. That is something that has been documented. Definitely. Um, there's two schools of thought about this, from what I understand. There's the, uh, there's the Gunderson School of Thought, which kind of goes with uh, John Gunderson, who's a, who's a, you know, a famous psychiatrist, um, that says that you know, we are just sensitive children, like we're born sensitive, and our parents do the best they can. And I'm sure that's the case. And I mean, I was a sensitive child, and I think you know, given the situation my parents were in, they both did their best. And it was a lot of it was just situational. They weren't 
ever, you know, a, like given the chance to be effective parents, um, considering that my father was kidnapped for so long. Right. Um, and it really, you know, created a huge disruption in my, in my childhood. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's, you know, the, the thing about, I think, how I got better from it is um, we have this fractured sense of self. Um, so for me, it was like I was, you know, my shrink helped me figure this out, but um, that I, I had broken myself into two people. And I was, part of it was, um, uh, well, part of me was this, like, really needy seven-year-old girl who just, like, wanted to be loved and held and, you know, um, cared for because I had not, felt like I got that when I was younger um, or didn't get it in the right way. And, you know, the other part of me is, you know, I think who I am, which is a strong, independent person who, um, you know, uh, doesn't like, who really hated that that other, that little girl because she was so needy and so whiny. And so there was a lot of um, self-talk going on for me, you know, where I'm telling myself, shut up. Why are you crying? Stop being so emotional. Stop being so needy, you know. And um, and that kind of conversation with yourself is not productive. Um, no, it was very self-critical, so self-punitive. Yeah, yeah, negative self-talk. So, what my psychiatrist has helped me do is integrate those two parts of my personality. And so, the first thing he said to me was, "You know, would you really treat a seven-year-old girl like that?" Um, and I wouldn't, obviously. Um, so he said, "You know, be kinder to that part of yourself. Um, you know, be curious about it, and and try to take it in. You know, and, ma- and because you're both those things, you're not one or the other." Um, and that really helped me visualize it. And I just want to touch on something you said earlier about religion, which I think um, is another thing that was misconstrued in the in the whole Pacman thing, is I am an agnostic, and I've worked in the Middle East for long enough to have developed a real um, distaste for religion in general. I think it's, you know, um, an outdated uh, institution. I don't think we need it anymore, and um, I think it causes a lot of problems. However, you know, and I think that's, the attitude that people like Bill Maher and, um, you know, David Pakman take. Um, my problem with their approach is, if you're going to do that, you have to treat all religions equally. You can't right. you can't say one is worse than the other, because there's so much evidence to prove that they're all kind, you know, it's not about the religion, it's about the people. And exactly. people are kind of just the same, no matter what. And, you know, Christianity has its share of, um, you know, atrocities attached to it, as does Judaism. Um, you know, it's just different sociopolitical contexts around them. Um, so my problem with that is that, you know, if you're going to dwell unduly on Islam as, as a particularly violent or, or inherently bad religion, I just don't think that's accurate. Right. And again, yeah, it really is. It's the people um, who, who use it if, uh, to advance whatever agenda they have. And uh, unfortunately, sadly, uh, many times this agenda is what we can call evil uh, against yeah. either a sing- individual people or whole groups of people. So yeah, thanks oh, yeah. for bringing that up. And, and the thing that you're saying about the self-talk, you know, um, you know, first of all, the, the one of the phrases that we use with borderline personality, and I know you've heard this, was splitting, right? That's yeah. the all good, all bad, whether it's yourself or other people, um, and it's a real fractured sense of self that you're describing. Well, you know. Again, I just want people to understand that uh, this negative self-talk, the self-critical talk, um, you know, I deal with that with a lot of people who don't have borderline personality. And there's a whole, you know, there's different types of therapy. And I'm not sure if you've ever looked into emotion-focused therapy. Um, no, I haven't. 
Okay, it's based on Gestalt principles. I'm just throwing this out there to people if they want to check it out. It's you know, it's not something you do yourself. You need someone who's specifically trained in it. Um, I was trained in it. I um, Les Greenberg, uh, Doctor Greenberg from York University. I think he's pre- Professor Emeritus right now. But um, he uh, started up with a few other people, uh, Doctor Rice as well, and one other person. I always forget the other name. Um, terrible with names, but uh, I, damn it, I, I don't want to uh, you know discredit or fail to give credit to the third person. But anyway, it's it's. Very very because it's it's you know based on gestalt principles it's very real it's very now it's not talking about things it's doing it so it might look funny i got to tell you it's it might look silly but in order to deal with people who are very self-critical or have this, you know, that, again, that negative self-talk, as you said, I, I say this to my patients as well, you know, would you talk to a little child that way? And everyone, they, you know, sometimes they don't even see the connection about what I'm saying. They, of course, they say, no, I would never do that. And then they go, oh, sometimes they get it. Other times they need me to say, so why are you doing it to yourself? Well, with emotion-focused therapy, instead of just talking about it, we put them into chairs and they actually live it out. They have this conversation with themselves back and forth. And it looks hilarious. It looks ridiculous. And I know the first time I saw it years ago as an undergrad, you know, the whole class was laughing. It just looks so silly. It feels quite silly, yeah. It does. But I'm telling you, everyone who does it, whether it's that or these other chair techniques that I do, not, you know, almost everyone says, I don't know what the hell just happened. It's just, it's yeah. amazing because you're not just theoretically talking about something. You're experiencing what you do to yourself. You're in the moment just tearing yourself apart, um, which we do. You know, people have that negative self-talk. So, you know, again, I just want people to understand that this is not just a conversation with borderline personality. Uh, it's just that with people with borderline personality have a much se- more severe, uh, you know, uh, experience. It's, it's tra- it is often trauma-based. I, I tell people I've not yet met a person with true borderline personality. I'm, I'm not talking symptoms or traits. I'm talking the actual full uh, you know, phenomenon. I have yet to see someone who has not had a horrific childhood. Okay, or at least a you know a, a at least a trauma, a huge trauma, uh, growing up, and you know, and, and if we think about your situation, I mean, there was trauma all around. Your father was traumatized. Your mother must have been traumatized. There's trauma in the air, uh, you know. It just it you can't let people be the best that they can be in, in that kind of experience, you know. So uh, yeah, it was sustained, and, and, and you know, it's it's a thing. My parents, um, I mean, yeah, they were both traumatized. Also, I was, you know, from the time I was old enough to remember I knew that my father had been kidnapped by terrorists and and you know um, I was a child of war correspondent so I thought you know was exposed to war and death and, and destruction all the time from a very very young age and then you know for me um, the first seven years of my life almost I idealized my father you know I thought which naturally I think most children do as an absent parent I thought he was going to be you know perfect a superhero um, and then he came home and he was quite different because right. of his experience, right. and that was very difficult for me because that immediately started um, this thought in my mind that you know my dad didn't love me and there was something wrong with me, and my mother was so sad all the time because there was something wrong with me, and that that sort of spiraled into what would eventually become a full blown borderline. Right, and again, that's that internalization I was saying. That fortunately with me, you know, I didn't have that because I knew no, my parents are fucked up. You know, that's <laughs> you know, uh, so. Uh, yeah, I didn't find that out until later. <laughs> and most people don't. I mean, they, they really don't. But, you know, um, and that's what I'm saying, that I'm hoping that people who are listening to this don't just say, oh, here's somebody talking about borderline personality. We're talking about a human condition that many people go through, but at different degrees, and there's different flavors for people. And um, and people with borderline personality, sadly, uh, and I try to say this to my, page, uh, to my students, I'm trying to help you know, I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to get people to pity other people. I'm trying to get them to have empathy, 
And and again, this lack of, and this is what's very important, we're all different people in different roles. I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm an instructor, I'm a psychologist, I'm a court expert, I'm this and that, you know, I'm a friend, I'm, uh, I'm a drinker, I mean, I'm all these different things. But at the core, I know who I am. And I think what people have to understand is someone with borderline personality has no core. There's no core sense of self. Empty, that's terrifying. Emptiness inside, and it's very scary. And I think there's like I always used to describe it as this empty place right in right in my solar plexus. There's just this vast emptiness, um, and I didn't know who I was, and it was very difficult. And I think the reason I talk about this so publicly is because you know I've met so many women, mostly who. Um, who immediately after five minutes of speaking with them, I say, have you been diagnosed with borderline? Um, and, and, you know, nine times out of ten, they, they say stuff like, you know, oh, yeah, doctors have mentioned it, but, like, I don't really know anything about it. And, you know, all I know is that I, I, if, when I'm not high, I want to I kill myself or what, whatever the, you know, symptom may be. Um, and it's, it's vastly undiagnosed for the most part. I mean, most people can go through their entire, a lot of people can go through their entire lives without knowing they have it. Right. It's an incredibly painful condition. And, um, you know, if I could encourage, um, and I'm sure in Canada you have better mental health uh, resources than we do in America, at least, um, you know, for affordable prices, and I would really encourage anybody listening who feels like this resonates with them to get help because it is something you can get better from, and that's something that I really strongly believe in. And just to touch on that, um, what you said about empathy, something that people with borderline generally have is an overdeveloped sense of empathy. Um so for me, I feel things that other people are going through very, very intensely. Um, and, and in a way, it's helpful because um, now when it's under control, I, I can, you know, form emotional bonds with people. I can, you know, for my, for my job, it, it, it is helpful because when someone you're interviewing knows that you actually care, right. they're going to be way more, you know, open with you and tell you more things, which is, you know, the point. And it's not a, a conscious manipulative thing. I really do care. You know, I want to know about this person. I want to put myself in their shoes. And I think that ability to empathize is a, an incredible um, gift. And, and, you know, so it's not all bad. There are good things that can come out of a condition like this. Right. And as, um, we're going to have to wrap up in a few minutes, but I want to touch upon a few things that you said. First of all, uh, I'm not so sure about the healthcare system in Canada. I don't want to praise it too much. Um, uh, my colleagues have been fighting to try to get uh, mental health uh, issues covered um, by our, our you know, private, uh, our pers- uh, public uh, tax dollars. It's not. Um, you, can get, you can go to psychiatrists, you can go to a GP. Uh, GPs are not experts in mental health. Psychiatrists may be, but uh, for the most part, they're just prescribing medication they don't usually do therapy and there's a huge wait list so i've been fighting every time i'm on on radio or tv saying governments have failed at the federal provincial and municipal levels Um, in america it's it's absolutely atrocious i mean people die all the time and suicide because they can't they're not you know being hostilized the all most psychiatrists of note in america don't take health insurance so my psychiatrist for example costs 400 dollars a session that's insane jeez um, I'm lucky enough to be able to afford that, but, you know, 90% of people aren't. So that's 90% of people that go without the care they need, and that, people die. Yeah, they die. And, and, and for people who are just, you know, who are looking at the bottom line, the irony is that mental health issues cause more damage to the economy because people are underperforming or they're not going to work at all. There's absenteeism, you know, that... And out of emergency rooms. Of, yeah, it just costs... So, exactly. So these politicians have got to smarten up. So that's one. We're running out of time. But number two, uh, you know what? A lot of times, and I've had this so many times when people are describing a family member and they're talking about, um, you know, how this person was diagnosed, not with borderline personality, but the number one... That's 
misdiagnosed bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. It's, and, and for a professional to misdiagnose, and unfortunately, a lot of times, it's family doctors, not always, um, but you know, because some of the symptoms seem similar, but they're so different, and yeah, so people, yeah. it's it's terrible. Okay, and number three, the irony when you're talking about the empathy is um, that, that, yes, people with borderline personality have a lot of emotional empathy, but there's, a, there's you know, a lack of cognitive empathy because they have a hard time really putting themselves in the other person's perspective. There's just too yeah. much going on. So, uh, and that, what you were describing, that was that, as you said earlier, this lack of boundaries, you know, where do I be, stop and where does the next person begin? People with borderline personality don't really have that. So when they, that's why the fear of abandonment is so great because it's like you're losing a part of yourself. Yeah, right. that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, so, uh, oh, and the last thing I was going to say, because a colleague of mine, he always describes it this way, and I like it how he describes it. When he works with people with borderline personality, what he tries to do is um, he tries to take the behaviors that they're doing that feel so natural to them, even though they're so unhealthy, they don't want to give it up. Mm-hmm. He wants them to realize that you know, he doesn't want them to be like part of an extension of their body. Like So to give up the certain behaviors, like chopping off a leg, he wants them to realize, no, no, I want to get rid of this trait, this behavior, this way of living, because it's not healthy. And you know, right? As once you, can, you need to find something else to replace it, which right? Is something more adaptive, you know, exactly. A healthy coping mechanism, yeah. Exactly. So Phil is uh, desperately trying to get me to wrap up. So uh, Sulame, thank you again so much for being on this podcast. So it's SulameAnderson.com. dot uh, If you go to SoundCloud, you'll see some links to some of her work and uh, and her Twitter handle. And I hope that, you know, maybe we can model for some people, you know, a, a healthy, intelligent, very respectful and civil uh, kind of discourse. Yeah, I hope so. All right. Well, thanks so much. All right.